Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Chadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Uh, today, you are in for a treat because it is a wide range of topics that we are tackling on Healthcare Unfiltered. I have two phenomenal physicians, Drs. Ross Levine and David Steensma. David has been on this show before for a variety of topics, but he is coming here to discuss mainly career path and, you know, what does a physician do in industry? Because he has transitioned, as you know, from the Dana-Farber almost a couple of years ago into Novartis, as well as about mentorship and medical meetings. And Dr. Ross Levine, who is his first time on the show, it will not be the last, you know, I mean, it can't be the last. But Ross has a very interesting career where, you know, he became a phenomenal and amazing scientist and a lab scientist, mainly in the lab. He sees patients occasionally right now, but he is mainly based in the lab. And I wanted to chat with Ross about, uh, you know, what does that mean? What does he do every day when he is a lab scientist? How does he mentor people? What is really the proper characteristics or attributes of a mentor to uh, be a successful. And of course, we talked about medical meetings. Look, me look, medical meetings are rather interesting because here's my theory on that. And you know, on Healthcare Unfiltered, I rarely offer my own opinions because I always feel that the podcast should be about the guests. I mean, who cares about what I have to say? But in case you do, in case you do, and I'm not sure you do, but in case you do, I think we have a whole lot of medical meetings than we need. We literally can go every single week for the entire year attending one meeting after another. This will certainly add more miles to your airline account, but does it really help? Does it help you to become a better physician and a better scientist? Does it help uh, advancing the science, or it's going to lead to burnout, and it's a little bit too much. We certainly have a lot of meetings, and I think these meetings many times are being held because it helps economics. It helps economics for the societies that hold the meetings. It also helps economics for the cities and the venues that have these meetings. And I think there will be a surge. I predict, and you heard it here first, I predict there will be a surge of more meetings over the next 12 to 24 months to make up for the loss of for the lost revenue, the lost revenue that have occurred when we had the lockdown and no meetings. That is my prediction. I could be wrong, but I think it's going to happen. It's economics 101, in, in my opinion. All right, folks. So uh, without further ado, uh, I'm welcoming Drs. Ross Levine and David Steensma. Uh, on Healthcare Unfiltered. And of course, before they come on the show, please don't forget to write a brief review, subscribe to the show, and rate the show. Refer your friends and colleagues to the show. You can find the show on all podcast outlets. You can also find it on YouTube on uh, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You also can uh, certainly follow me on Instagram and visit my website, www.chadinabhan.com. Before I forget, there's a guest appearance, by the way, on this show. He's not going to be with us for the entire show, but without further ado, Drs. David Steensma and Ross Levine with a guest appearance.
All right, folks. Well, uh, it's Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm very excited because, first of all, I have a new guest that I've admired uh, through Twitter and through interacting with him on social media. But it's the first time that he comes on the show. I'm very excited to, uh, to have Dr. Ross Levine. He'll introduce himself. And I have two recurrent guests, uh, 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 Alan Skardnick, who goes by Scarbs. You know, anytime you have like a nickname beyond your name, you know you've made it. You know you've made it. And uh, I'm hoping to be called CN or something. And then Dr. David Steensman. So let's do a quick introduction and then we will get started and talk about three main topics, career paths, mentorship, and uh, medical meetings in the time of COVID. Ross, get us started. Tell uh, listeners and viewers a little bit about you. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Chadi. Uh, I'm a physician scientist uh, at Sloan Kettering and a leukemia doctor by training. And uh, I um, actually did my formative training at Dana-Farber, which David uh, knows well, and then got uh, to Sloan about 15 years ago. And I've run a lab here for the last 15 years studying leukemia genetics and biology and therapy, always at sort of the interface between the lab and the clinic, working with lots of great folks here and everywhere else. Two other things, I now, I guess, have a larger role here overseeing all of translational research at Sloan, which has been an interesting career transition in the past year for me. And I've had the amazing experience of having just the most spectacular people and colleagues in my career. Uh, and that does include both Dave and I have had many uh, amazing interactions over the years. And uh, Scarbs uh, was a trainee in my lab in our formative early years, which maybe we could talk a little bit about because it was, I think, very useful for both him and for me and for the whole group. Absolutely. And Ross, do you have a clinical responsibility to see patients or just mainly in the lab? So I, I, until 2022, I always attended on our leukemia service for four to six weeks a year. Um, and then this past year, I decided to pivot and I'm now just doing a small, uh, as David will appreciate, clonal hematopoiesis clinic, but I do uh, have a small continuity clinic and I've sort of pivoted from inpatient only for 15 years to now outpatient only, at least for the moment. So you're going to tell us a little bit of the uh, pros, cons, and the pains and aches of being a clinician scientist or a science-based researcher, because uh, I'll tell you my view that how much guys you struggle for uh, funding and, and lab and all that stuff. Scarbs, welcome back to the show. Um, uh, you know, I still maintain that one day me and you are going to have a restaurant together, judged by all of the posts about your barbecue. But a little bit about you, and uh, you're representing the career path of a clinician researcher. I am. Okay, that's news to me. But thank. first of all, thank you for inviting me. Uh, unfortunately, I don't I won't have a lot of time here. I've had a, a different commitment, but uh, uh, thanks for thinking of me. Thanks, Ross, for thinking of me. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here again, and certainly we'll open our restaurant someday. I am from Brazil originally. I went to med school there. I did my internal medicine residency there. Um, and during that time, I had the opportunity to uh, visit some of the cancer centers in the U.S. I spent some time at MD Anderson, a couple of months, a couple of months at Dana-Farber, uh, where um, I, it ended that uh, the comparison between at that time, the training that was available here for oncology, hematology was uh, vastly different than would be available in Brazil. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to come over. So uh, I came over here in 2007 to redo my internal medicine residency uh, in New York. I did it at uh, St. Luke's Roosevelt, which was a, a community hospital affiliated with Columbia at the time. But uh, what we did at the time is we 
covered the floors, the infirmary floors at um, Memorial Sloan Catering, where I met Ross uh, in the in the leukemia service. And at that time, I was particularly interested in leukemia. And uh, I asked Ross actually to give me an opportunity to kind of come to his lab and see what's all about and try to learn and see that's what I want to do. Uh, Ross was extremely generous uh, with opening the doors for that and, and with his time and uh, uh, helping to, I have never worked in a lab before. It was truly the first time that I pipetted something since med school. Uh, but, you know, I learned a lot from Ross, from being the lab, uh, from, from uh, I think it was the first or second year of your lab at that time. Yep. It was yep. very early on. Uh, I almost set his lab on fire. I believe you did I, I, almost, 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 think, almost. I mean, he kept caught on fire. There was a young, there was a young Dr. Abdel Wahab, uh, who David yeah. knows well in the lab at that time, who exactly. was just starting his training as well. To be yeah, there. yeah, Omar was there, and it was it was a great experience. I had a lot of of field experiments there, but it was uh, an important teaching to to learn uh, to deal with failures. Actually, so that was that was very cool, and Ross was tremendously. Tremendously helpful in opening the doors for me afterwards. Helped me get a fellowship. Wrote um, an awesome recommendation letter. So it was was very good in that in that sense. And uh, uh, I'm really tremendously thankful to you up to this day for all of that. And then I uh, did my fellowship at Fox Chase Cancer Center. And then I did my transplant fellowship at City of Hope. And then since then I, I took more of a, a clinical pathway rather than a, lab path. I mean, it was important for me to know that that's not what I wanted to do, too. So I think having that experience and, and, and leaning in a different way was important. So I've been working with uh, uh, transplant cell therapy and Muslim lymphoma and CLL since then, but I focused on, on, on clinical research. So that's it. Thanks. Thanks, Carbon. And I know that you're tight on time. We're very appreciative, but we thought this is a great mentor-mentee type of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I have to add that, you know, even since I left, Russ is, is still very generous. Every time there was a meeting at Ash for his lab, he always invited me. Uh, I always participated, even though I was there for a short period of time. Um, I still felt a part of it. So that was, that was and great. Uh, you're from Brazil, so Doha 2022. Let's see what happens, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't have much faith in, in my national team, but we'll see. Yeah. As long as Argentina doesn't win, I'm, I'm happy. Ah. Uh, David uh, Steensmel, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about what you are career-wise right now. Sure. Um, you know, I am uh, academic uh, at heart. Until 2020, I was at Dana-Farber, previously at Mayo Clinic, had been a University of Chicago medical student, um, and in 2020 was recruited to NIBR, which is Novartis's early drug development institute, like a biotechnology company within a larger pharmaceutical company, recruited by Jay Bradner, a very dynamic uh, scientist, uh, stem cell transplanter by training. I had known Jay from Dana-Farber, where he was for uh, a number of years, focused on chemistry and drug development, and he was a stem cell transplanter. Uh, I was trained as a MDS leukemia doctor and um, had a heavy clinical practice of MDS marrow failure 
And then in the last seven, eight years, when I was seeing patients, it was really focused on, um, you know, still very much MDS, but started up a clonal hematopoiesis uh, clinic um, very shortly after Ross and Kelly Bolton and their colleagues at MSKCC started one. Um, that was a fascinating experience, and I, I really enjoyed that. Um, what I do now is I lead hematology drug development for um, Novartis, at least early drug development. And that includes everything from talking with the scientists who are working on target discovery, on um, lead candidate optimization, on GLP toxicology studies, to uh, you know, supervising physician-led teams who are designing the first-in-human trials, interacting with regulatory agencies, um, and it's all across hematology. So everything from sickle cell gene therapy to novel CAR T's and everything in between, um, you know, hemalignancies and non-malignant teams. So it's been a really dynamic, uh, fun. Uh, I've been doing this about 20 months now. Um, and uh, it's really been very cool. I still get to interact with a lot of investigators. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a really cool community. Um, the heme and hemalignancies community. And I think, you know, my friendship with Ross really exemplifies that, uh, you know, I met Ross probably 10 years ago now or, or more, um, more, I think actually. We wrote our first paper together before we ever met in person. Which... That's right. We did do. Yeah. Back, back when Gary Gilliland was still at, uh, at, at 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 17 years. Um, and, uh, you know, I've just benefited immensely from contact with him. He's absolutely, you know, one of the most smart people I know, you know, very, I, every time I talk to him, I learn something. So, um, and, you know, and then meeting you, Chadi, in this context, we first met when I was a JCO section editor yeah. and you had yeah. submitted a manuscript and we worked uh, through that, that got published. And, um, and then I was on this podcast once before with Mikhail Sekras, whose career in some ways has paralleled mine. Mikhail is now the chair down at University of Miami, uh, and he left uh, Cleveland Clinic for a new role the same time that I left for this new role in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So that was our previous healthcare unfiltered we podcast. Talked, we talked, we talked so about, I already have one t-shirt. Yeah, well, this is your fourth appearance. We talked actually the other time when you wrote uh, about the Raven and JC. Oh, that's right. I was very, oh, yeah. Uh, I forgot I about very, that. That was right at the beginning. I was very intrigued. It was my, I was an amateur podcaster. Look at me and I'm a professional. But yeah, um, come a long way, uh, baby. But, uh, but the, the, uh, the episode with Mikhail and you was really more focused on, um, career change, like we talked about uh, what career change, what I want to focus a little bit more on what happens in the days, uh, in the life of, of that career, what do you do every day um, in that career, and then segue into additional topics. So Ross, I want to, I want to start with you. So if I'm listening to this, and you know, so you're a lab-based scientist, and so on, in addition to what got you into this, because I presume when you go to medical school, Few people know that they're going to be lab-based in general. When you first go to medical school, into the rotation, you're really thinking you're going to be a doctor, a clinician, and taking care of patients. Not that you're not, but you rarely think right away you're going to be a lab-based scientist. So in addition to telling us how this happened, what, what do you do day in and day out? How, the, how is your day or week structured as running a lab? Yeah, so two great questions. I'll try and address them one after the other because actually 
the story of how I became a scientist at least got some interesting um, uh, components of it. Um, I'm an MD. I don't have a PhD. Um, when I was an undergrad, I didn't have any really laboratory experience, kind of like what Alan said when he showed up to my lab. I was not a, some either. I had colleagues, including Jay Bradner, who was my college classmate who was in a lab, Mark Potashny's lab as an undergrad at Harvard. I didn't work in the lab at all. And so I got to medical school thinking exactly as you said, Chadi, I was going to be a clinical expert in something. And I was excited to figure out that was. But what happened to me was that when I got to med school, I had an um, interaction with a guy named Bob Kerman. He was my father's um, colleague from college. My dad's a retired dentist, but they went to undergrad together. And he was, a, at the time, a division head at Hop Johns Hopkins in gynecologic path. Scarps, be well, my friend. Miss you, ma'am. You, you too. Thank you for the for the invite. It's a it's a pleasure it's to fun. see you all. Ha having you having you for five minutes is is okay. You probably can log in back. We'll probably be still talking in the next hour. Yeah. So. yeah. Hopefully, I'll, I'll touch base. Sorry all to right. interrupt. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah. Bye. So I um, yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to really think about and do, and I met uh, this gentleman who was important in my career. He was a pathologist, no molecular background, but he was the only person I knew at the med school. Um, and he was my, someone my dad knew. And I, for the first month of med school, I never went and got, saw him because when your dad tells you to go talk to somebody, the first thing you do is not when you're 23, <laughs> listen to your parents. But after a month, I was like, you know what, maybe I should call him up. So I went to visit him and he was in his office um, with his six-headed scope. And he's like, the future is molecular biology and you need to go do science. And uh, the same way that um, some people, if you remember the uh, story from the graduate of math, math being told to work, it doesn't happen to work on plastics. Uh, it was that same story, science, <laughs> you should do science. And so he put me in a lab basically by calling up two junior faculty, amazing women, uh, Laura uh, Hedrick Allenson, who's now actually at Sloan, which is great because we get to interact. The other was Kathy Cho, who is now at University of Michigan. And they had just started their labs. They'd done their postdocs with Bert Vogelstein, who's an iconic figure at cancer research. And I got to the lab and like Scarb said, I was like all thumbs, right? I, nothing worked, but that first summer, um, I worked in their lab and nothing worked. And then my last week, in that summer, all of a sudden I found stuff. I found mutations in a cancer, in this case, serous uh, uterine cancer had never been found. And it was the first inkling that we would have a publication that ultimately a postdoc wrote. But I like got to see discovery, something, I found something with my, at that point, hands and eyes that no one had ever seen before. And I could go into my PI's office and go, I discovered mutations in this gene that had never been seen before. And it was like, I was hooked. I was like, oh my God, like this is the moment. And I think the other thing was that I also realized that science was going to impact medicine. And I was like, this was going to blend well with an interest in medicine and human health. I did a gap year between my third and fourth year of med school. I was at Johns Hopkins. It was amazing. I remember leaving the clinic and going to the lab and I wasn't like, oh my God, why did I do this? I loved the lab. I loved the clinic. I always found the back and forth very seamless. I went back to the wards after my year. I love great experience in the lab. And then I went to fellowship, residency, and then fellowship. And I was like, I'm going to do this clinician scientist thing. I'm going to be that physician scientist. And I remember I wrote my essay for fellowship um, where I was going to do that. And so I did a year at the Farber. I, I, I found I loved um, leukemia. I knew that that was the area I wanted to do. I had amazing experiences in the 
boards. But I felt like the science was the problem with leukemia, that the drugs weren't there. And that if I was going to focus on leukemia in 2002, 2003, I had to be in a lab and figure it out because there, there was just no exciting, there was just no targeted therapy. It was a tough time, as David will know. And so I, I, I met a guy named Gary Gilland when he was giving a talk to the first year fellows. And he said, targeted therapy is going to change the world. Gleevec has just come out. It's this great moment to find mutant genes. And I'm like, I'm going to work with this guy. And I went and I called him up and he's like, you got to come to my lab. And the last part of the story I'll tell, and this is important, I tell this to the trainees all the time, was that I was told by, at the time, my fellowship director, I should be careful because I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, I've said many things, that I should never be a scientist, that I was destined to be a clinician, I didn't have a PhD, and that I should really think long and hard before I went in the lab. And the, probably the most important thing I did was not listen to that advice and go to the lab anyway, not because it wasn't good advice, but because sometimes the best thing you do is take good advice. But if you believe in something, do what you want anyway. But it did cause me to think about it and really commit. And I committed. And I was in Gary Gilliland's lab for four or five years. Um, I had an amazing experience. I was lucky because we discovered the JAK2 um, mutation when I was, that was my postdoctoral project. And that really obviously was a high impact discovery and gave me an opportunity to run my lab. And I came to Sloan after that in 2007 when Memorial started its new translational program. And I've been there ever since. And so to, that, that's my story. And I'm happy to, to dive into it. And like I said, David and I wrote a paper even before we met, which was our second Jackie paper. I think it was a blood paper, right, David? Yep. And I think you're first author and I'm second with Teferi and Gary on the frequency of jack mutations across myeloid malignancies. Yeah. But um, before you go to your day, Ross, one of the things you mentioned is pretty interesting. And maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that, because I think from a listener perspective, it's probably going uh, to resonate with them. Um, you're an MD, not a PhD, or not an MD, PhD. And there is a sense, there is a sense, maybe a perception, maybe wrong, maybe right. Because PhDs are trained differently, um, MDs might have a little bit more of a challenge to really be in the lab, completely focused in the lab and running a lab. Is this a perception or reality? Did you say- oh, I think, this? yeah, I think it's reality. I think there are some real headwinds um, for MDs who wanna devote their career to predominantly laboratory science. One is that you get typecast. And I think that was my experience that it's easy to, to not think that someone who doesn't have a PhD, um, that they're gonna go to the lab just to try it and they're not gonna stick with it. That's one thing. I think there are a lot of training programs in oncology where you only get a year and a half in the lab. And even during that year and a half, you're always being pulled to clinic. If you're an MD and you're gonna do science, like I needed four or five years of dedicated scientific time. And I had a program and an institution and a mentor who worked hard to protect my time. It did mean, for example, that I deferred joining the faculty for at least one extra year. Um, and so you gotta make some choices. And uh, so, Erica- so you, you, my, did, you did this four years after fellowship or- I did, I, did, um, I did a four-year Hemong fellowship, which included about two and a half years of dedicated research time, and then tacked on two more as an instructor at the Farber with very limited, um, uh, lim limited clinical involvement. So I really had dedicated protected time. They put me on training grants. I wrote career development awards, but most importantly, people believed in me and thought that I needed that time. And I think it's really hard to, in 2022, 
it, unless you're at a very small number of institutions with the right mentors to make sure that people get enough of a sort of cocoon. And I don't know what David, do you think? I, I worry greatly about it. And what I've noticed in our sort of um, faculty applications we get for independent is the drop in the number of straight MDs who apply for faculty positions, which means many of them aren't even getting there. They're, and, and I don't, I, I hate to use the word that they're you know, falling off the tree. That's not fair. I think there are great paths and, and being a clinical investigator and having been in the lab is also wonderful, but we're worried that the number of MD only folks who go into science are limited. Craig Thompson, who's our outgoing CEO at Sloan Kettering is an MD without a PhD. Charles Sawyers, who's been my mentor and boss at Sloan uh, is an MD. Harold Varmus is an MD without a PhD, but I'm very worried that that sort of path is getting harder and it's, it's, it needs um, more support than we're giving it. What do you think, David? I agree. Do you want me to talk to how I got to where I am or? Yeah, just, yeah you could do that. And then I'm gonna go back to Ross about his day-to-day -day activity. So we'll go back and forth this way. You know, I think what Ross says is, is very true. Um, and I think it's changed. Um, it was never easy for MDs only to start a lab career, but uh, it's become more difficult in recent years. And part of that's because uh, clinical medicine has become increasingly burdensome. You're spending a lot more time documenting. You're spending a lot more time doing prior authorizations. When you're young, you often have less help and protection to do that. Um, and so unless you have a really special microenvironment, and those still exist, but they're far fewer than there were, uh, is, is my perception. It's, it's really, really hard, hard to do. Um, so I, you know, I went to medical school having thought at first that I was going to do graduate studies in astronomy and, uh, you know, publish some physics papers. And that was the direction I was going. And I, I took a cell biology class just for fun in college because I'd already completed my major requirements. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. Maybe I should, you know, take organic chemistry, which was the only thing I didn't have that I needed for med school. And, uh, and, and go to med school instead. So I took a year's worth of organic chemistry over the summer between my, my junior and senior years and, and the rest was you know history. But I went to medical school thinking not necessarily that I was gonna do science. I was certainly open to the idea. I had some really good mentors, uh, Jim Vardaman, um, uh, Janet Rowley, um, John Altman was very influential at University of Chicago and um, uh, you know, I met Dick Larson there, um, also, you know, great role model, and ended up gravitating towards hematology, went out to Mayo Clinic because my wife had had, we got married during med school, she was doing a PhD in English at UIC, and, and she'd had enough of living in the big city and having our car broken into, and, you know, my classmates were getting mugged all the time, and <laughs> it was just, it's, uh, we just high, it's Hyde Park, it's Hyde Park, it's not, <laughs> well, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's not so easy. But um, so we went to Rochester, Minnesota, um, uh, which turned out to be great. I loved Mayo. You know, the winters are tough, of course, but so many good people there. Mayo is a very clinically heavy institution, I will say. I got great clinical training. Um, I did. You know, I went into the lab as an elective my first year and just thought it was super cool. Made a, a little tiny discovery in red cell biology and uh and, and I thought, wow, I could, I could do this as part of my career. And so, but like Ross, I realized without a PhD, I was at a disadvantage. I stayed at Mayo for fellowship. Um, but in order to get some extra time preparing for the lab component, 
uh, I went away to the UK for two years, got a visiting scholar. Uh, and there I didn't see patients except, you know, tagging along a couple times a month with a, a consultant. So I was in Oxford at the Weatherall Institute of Molecular Medicine studying globin gene regulation. Um, in the context of myeloid neoplasia, it was terrific. We discovered a new somatic mutation. Um, and then I came back on the faculty in 2004 with a K award and, and a lab of my own. Um, it was a small lab, but it was fun. Um, and I, I had gotten the idea when I was in Oxford that there were likely to be spliceosome mutations in MDS and um, started you know, looking at that, got distracted by some other projects. That was a little bit of a challenge. Um, and I, you know, kept applying for uh, funding to try to study this spliceosome and MDS, started looking at some candidate genes, picked the wrong ones. Um, and, uh, and eventually, you know, I, I, I kind of faced a choice where um, I was doing more clinical trials, a lot of investigator initiated trials because pharma wasn't interested in MDS or MPN at that time. So they were all IITs. Ayelu Teferi was a clinical mentor uh, around um, myeloid disorders and clinical trials. And, and, you know, 2008 came around and I kind of had to decide, you know, because the K was coming to an end, what, what should I do next? I got some great philanthropic funding, so I could have kept it going. But Rich Stone called and said, gosh, we really need somebody, you know, out at Dana-Farber. It's a much more clinical position. You can work with Gary Gilliland if you want, but uh, it's going to be really hard because we're going to work you really hard on the Leukemia Awards. Um, and so I, you know, I thought about it, talked to my wife about it and, and went and, um, you know, and got there. No sooner had I arrived than Gary left. Uh, but there was a terrific young investigator named Ben Ebert uh, who took over a lot of Gary's lab space. Ben was a great collaborator. Um, and so that that was a lot of fun. Um, and then, you know, was really in a good position. I had I was well funded, actually, uh, enjoying what I was doing, had a good mix of the patients I wanted to see, great colleagues. But, you know, Jay Bradner is a persuasive guy. And when he called, uh, I initially said no. You know, industry doesn't seem like the life for me, but uh, he called again and I came out and visited and one thing led to another. And, you know, it was 2022 also, and I was turning 50 in that December. So it's one of those life milestones where you think, what do I want to do if the creator gives me another 15, 20 years? Usually of, you buy a top, uh, you know, top down Corvette and that's what you do. Yeah, well, no, that's not my style. <laughs> so so yeah. I thought, uh, you know, maybe I, maybe I should try this and see if I can in influence health in a different way. Uh, and, and that's how this came about. You know what? Uh, you remind me of one of my colleagues at the University of Chicago. I'll mention him. His, uh, his name is Walt Stadler. He, hopefully he'll be listening to this at some point. He, uh, he used to tell me, no is the start of the conversation. So when you, told, when you said no to Jay, he's just going keep to go, keep going again. <laughs> so, um, so, Ross... Okay, tell us how your day looks and your week looks. What do you do every day as a lab scientist? Maybe, maybe for fun, what I'll do is I'll tell you what I did today. How about that? Yeah, um, it's a pretty typical day. Um, uh, after I went out for my um, early uh, run in Central Park, um, I met at um, about 
7.45 a.m. with the chair of medicine, Deb Schrag, um, who David does well, yeah. um, because we were trying to figure out some areas where translational medicine and the Department of Medicine, where things we can figure out together, faculty recruitment, strategic areas, biomarkers. And it's been hard for us to find time during the day. And so we thought the simple thing was to meet for breakfast because we both have to eat. So we met for breakfast <laughs> um, at 9 uh, a.m. I did a Zoom with an investigator in Italy who is from the ASH TRTH program who wanted some advice on a proposal because I was on uh, TRTH um, this year. And then let me look back. I, I had almost all of it memorized. Um, I then met with one of the um, postdocs in my lab who's a pathology faculty member who works in my lab on MRT and RUNCS1. And we sat in my office for a half hour. We went over, um, went over data. Um, and then I had about an hour to sort of answer email and write and think. And then at 11 o'clock, we had lab meeting from 11 to 12 uh, in person. And uh, one of the newer postdocs, who's a physician scientist in my lab, presented an uh, exciting new project where he's making a whole bunch of new mice. And we got to um, sit and dig into it as a group. And then at noon, um, I actually had a meeting with a company I founded with uh, some of the folks who were um, involved in helping me do that. So we had some decisions to make about what we're doing. And then I had a couple more meetings with lab members. Um, I met with one of my um, postdocs who's from Spain, whose project's at a crossroads. And I actually asked another lab member and the technician he works with to join so we could make some choices and whiteboard some experiments or ideas. So we did that. Um, and then I... Um, had a Zoom meeting with some colleagues at AstraZeneca who just wanted my advice on something, Anas Yunus, who um, you guys may know well, yeah. and one of his colleagues. So we, were, we caught up on some things. We just wanted to chat, just to catch up. And then I had a um, four o'clock meeting with one of our, uh, with the head of our research administrator, because we're looking at our budget for next year, and we're trying to make decisions about um, administrative support and how we can be more efficient and effective. Um, and then I met with one of my grad students uh, who is about to do her thesis qualifying exams. She's an MD, PhD. She's been in the lab about a year, and she has to now have her proposal evaluated by her committee. And so we were going over her ideas and aims and getting those into shape so she can show her committee. And then after a little bit more email, I came home. I walked the block from Sloan to my apartment, where I am now, and I got on the podcast. So I don't know if that gives you a flavor no, of my it day. Does. It, it does. was Zoom. No. It was sitting down with people with data. It was talking it, it to does. colleagues in academic industry. It does. So I think I'm going to subclassify your 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 usual days is a lot of meetings. Yep. Uh, these meetings could be internal meetings, with, uh, and some of them are external meetings. And then you have the lab meetings, which is, uh, is it daily lab meeting you have or uh, once a week? We or? do, a, as a group, we do, I do a weekly lab meeting with the whole lab. And then I meet with each person in the lab um, an average of every two weeks. But many of those people have a weekly slot and we just like, sometimes that we decide everything's good. I actually think, I always say the most important thing you do as a mentor is when your lab trainee says, you know what? I don't actually need to meet with this week. We met last week. I got, I'm good. I just need the time to do experiments. I'm like, I'm always happy for you to give me my time back. And so, then you get your time back. Uh, so, so the type of meetings, internal meetings, external meetings could be with collaborators, mentees yeah. or industry. Yep. And, and then there are the lab meetings piece. 
Are you ever involved at this stage of the game with, um, you know, spending time in the lab, watching the technical aspect of an experiment? Like, is this something that you just did when you were junior faculty and no longer do, or are you still involved in that? So everyone runs their lab differently. Um, I probably for the last 10 years have not um, physically done experiments. I have um, a lab of 18 people, and I think that it's, it's more important for me to sit with their fresh data and help them think through it than me to actually do experiments. I do, I'm in the lab, I would say on a normal day, three to six times a day in the physical lab, because I'll just go in and talk to people. I'd be like, what's up? Let's talk about this, or I had an idea. And I think that, especially with the pandemic, where there's less interaction with the outside world, I've actually gotten more interaction within me and my lab. In fact, for most of the last few years, the only people I see in person are my lab members. Almost everything else is by Zoom. So that's changed a little bit as we do more meetings. And actually for me, that's been enriching because when I, pre-pandemic, we'll get to meetings when I was often traveling and electronically with my lab, I actually find the flip more fun. I would rather spend more time with the people who are in my group who are generating data in person. I, I just, to me, that's the part I, I, I think that, that gets me the most excited is when somebody in the lab's got a new result and I can sit with them and think through it. That's the part that even as I take on leadership roles, I can't live at least for now without. But when you first started, I presume the first couple of years. I was in the bench. I was in the bench. And what I did, every lab is different. How I did it was that I took the first four or five people as they started the lab, including Omar Abdel-Wahab and uh, Priya Kapakar and others, is that I sat with them and I really sort of worked alongside them and got them going and helped them do things and 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 that was great and it meant that in many ways like we were side by side but within a year or two they were sort of like Ross we can do the experiments what we need your help in is how do we figure out what those results mean how do we get it into a story how do we get the papers and grants and that's a style thing there are other people that spend their life always at the bench and I have great admiration for that um I don't think how I do it's the right way it's just how I do it no as I listen to me, it seems it's the logical way as you progress, you know, you, you want to help differently. Uh, they, they will need more help thinking as opposed just to the technical stuff. But if you had a lab of four or five people, some people that keep their labs small so that they can work at the bench next to their people, I think that's a wonderful model too. But anyway. All right. So, uh, David, um, you had a question for Ross, and then you're going to pivot from that to tell us a little bit about how your day-to-day looks like. Yeah. So my question for Russ is, you know, at this stage of your career, there's a lot of people who have come through your labs who have now set up their own independent groups or they've moved on to become, you know, faculty members, some of them quite clinical at different institutions, others, you know, with a heavy research. Um, do, do people still reach out to you regularly for advice once uh, once they've moved on to new institutions and and what's what's that been like? Because some of them, you know, have stayed at MSKCC, but you've also now trained a lot of people who have set up their own groups in different places. I don't know. I, I keep in touch with everybody um, pretty much who's ever been through the group. Um, I just gave comments on an R1 to one of my former trainees who's at Mount Sinai. Um, I've got somebody I trained with who's at Columbia, um, Aaron Vinny, who you know well, who I've talked to almost um, every day um, by email or by Slack. Uh, Nicole Cousine, who went across the street to Cornell and does pediatric MPN, I still meet with her monthly. 
and my attitude is that my my lab is a family and whether you're in the lab or gone um you're part of it i also think to be blunt and this is something people don't appreciate enough i actually feel like i get a lot of mentorship from my current and former lab members too about science and my choices and i find that that bilateral only gets better as people move on i, I think gary taught me that that when i was in gary gillen's lab i think i felt like i was sucking you know all the juice out of the orange that was Gary's wisdom, but is is when he left when I left and then when he went to Merck, he and I would still meet every year. And I felt like, although it was never truly symmetric, it was bilateral. And I think for me that was an important thing. I will tell you that when I have choices to make about my career, my current and former group are the people I tend to go to um, first and foremost, um, and and they're incredibly helpful to me as I hope I am to them. Thank you. Very good point. I, I usually call this uh, the advisory council that each one of us have, that they may not be always visible, but you know that these are the ones you will call when you're trying to make an important decision. Uh, David, what, what's your day looking like? Yeah, my day is really uh, varied, and I like that. There's a lot of time. Increasingly, we are going into the, the lab in the office. Um, However, uh, the majority of our meetings are still on MS Teams. The range of meetings is really quite wide. So they can be anything from meeting with scientific investigators, and they may have a new target that they want my opinion on, or they may have identified um, you know, a couple of different development candidates, but each one has a different liability. So they, they say in this patient population, is it more important to have, you know, acute, no QT prolongation, or is it more important to have something that can be given once a day instead of twice a day, you know, and, and, and those, those types of meetings. There's also a lot of um, just more theoretical uh, where they say, you know, what if we could do this? We think we might be able to degrade this protein. Would this be useful? Um, you know, we think we might be able to make a tri-specific antibody with this co-stimulatory molecule. What do you think about that? Then there's a fair number of meetings with the clinical groups. So the, I, there's five clinical program leaders, physicians uh, who are all terrific, who I'm their manager. Each of them has you know, three or four different programs that, that they're leading. And so I meet with them at least once every one to two weeks, sometimes more frequently if issues arise. And we talk about their studies. We talk about, you know, what the recent FDA feedback was, you know, how it's accruing, what toxicities are being seen, all the kinds of things that, that you would expect. What the future of the program is, particularly after major meetings like ASH, SCO, ASH, EHA, uh, when new data is presented, we get a lot of competitive intelligence. What are other companies doing? Are we still competitive or are we falling behind? You know, we, we had a BCMA-directed uh, molecule, um, but after some of our competitors have had huge success and achieved uh, regulatory approval, you know, we decided it just is a very heavily subscribed uh, target, at least that one molecule. Um, so, yeah, there's... there's um, uh, also, a lot of more general strategy meetings, including with our late development groups. So yesterday, I was in New Jersey um, and spent the day with our global development group. They're the people who do the regulatory phase three trials, um, the ones that are going for registration. 
Um, and so once we in Nibber have developed a new medicine, taken it through first of human studies, achieved what's called proof of concept, and then we say, hey, this is what we would recommend as your go forward dose, um, then, then they take it forward for that last important critical step for uh, a randomized study, usually for regulatory approval. Um, I also interact a lot with external investigators. Um, you know, sometimes this is around academic collaborations. Uh, we have uh, collaborations with sites all over the world around either investigator initiated trials or they're doing work related to one of our compounds. Um, and then one of the things that's still fun is I still get to do some academic type things. So, you know, two weeks ago, I was at Columbia University for the day uh, meeting with Aaron and, and uh, giving a, a, a talk there. And, you know, it was a, a very quick trip, but it was fun to see uh, some folks I hadn't hadn't seen in a while. And um, and, and uh, so, so that's uh, that, that's good. And, and perhaps leading into our next uh, segment. One of the things, the only thing that it seemed like people in industry complain about other than, you know, high turnover in companies and things was the travel. And for that first 18 months, I was doing virtually no travel. In the last two months, that's gone from zero to 60 miles an hour. I mean, I, I've gone, I've had probably nine trips in the last eight weeks. Most of them are short. But yeah, ASCO, EHA, site visits to East Hanover, site visit to Basel, two of our other Novartis sites. You know, this, this retreat, a different retreat in Maine, another retreat on Cape Cod for strategy and planning, visits to, to, to Columbia, visit to another academic site, um, uh, ISCT out in California, IWNDS this weekend. And it's just, thankfully, this is it. Now, two months, there's going to be nothing, but it just went crazy. I, uh... I thought... Gosh, I, I, now I know I, what people complain about. I had a lot of travel over the past couple of months. I said, okay, can we get a lockdown for three weeks? Just three weeks lockdown, just please. I miss lockdown. Um, Ross, um, one of the things that we hear a lot about, and many people not complain about, but it's certainly a barrier to them wanting to do a career like yours, is grant funding. Uh, not only the process of writing grants, which I believe there's an art to it. I think um, I've written grants that were rejected, uh, but there was an art in writing them at least. Um, but but wh how do you, what, what do you think is going on there? How difficult this is? How tough is to get funding? Because let's, let's be honest. I mean, the, the a lab career success, and correct me if I'm wrong, is really contingent on getting money. And how you yep. get the money is going to be either from your own institution, from pharma, from the government. So tell us how, I don't know, give us the do's and do nots and, 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 and how much do you believe this is a barrier in getting more scientists into the lab? I think it's a big barrier. And I think the model has got, you know, inherent fundamental flaws that have existed and only get worse over time. So that's my glass half empty um, perspective on it, um, but I'm at heart an optimist. So I think, you know, the way I've always thought of it is that you have to learn that it's for better, or for worse, sort of a, um, a system and a game. And you have to learn, um, one, how to do it effectively. And you're right. I, I, I really believe that, you know, the most important thing you learn if you want to 
do this for a career is how to write a successful grant and what it takes to get there and how long it takes and how to handle um, those first two times it comes back and get right back up there and revise it and do it again. Um, and, you know, I don't think anybody, if you design a system ab initio would say that, you know, most grants will need two or three rounds before they get funded, but that's the system we have. And I think that, you know, I always say that most important thing you need to learn in academic medicine, whether you're lab or clinical, is that rejection is just a um, hurdle on the way to success. And, you know, if you can't compartmentalize when your grants or papers are rejected and go home and still find joy in things and find joy the next day in data, then this is the wrong profession for you because I think that it's really easy to dwell on the 90% failure, 10% success. And so I think my greatest asset is I'm, I just don't dwell on it. It can, it can smart and it hurts for a moment, but ultimately you, you know that those are the rules of the game. On the other hand, Chatty, I think there's two things that you can do beyond just, I just said, get thick skin. You know, one is that I do think that some people are really good at it. And I always tell the example of Jonathan Licht, who's the can senator who used to be in Florida, who David knows well. When I was a young investigator and I was writing a grant, one of my earliest grants was a collaborative grant and he was part of it. And he writes grants beautifully, as good as anybody. And he both, one, I saw how he did it. And two, he actually spent a couple hours with me on mine and said, this is how I'd rephrase it. And I learned incredible skills about how to communicate my ideas in the most effective way, in a way that the reviewer would find it visually pleasing and that they wouldn't be like, oh my God, it's 10, eight pages of straight text. Like how to use, you know, the, the 12 pages as a, you know, way to, you know, beautifully present your ideas. And I have unabashedly in my career um, taken great strategies from many great people. And I tell people all the time that when you work with me, we write grants together. I help you with yours and you often, I'll ask you to help me with mine because then you'll learn what works for me and you'll figure out what parts of it work for you. And you can plagiarize, if you will, the strategies that work for any person and adapt them to yours. I mean, the strategy, not the text, of course. Of course. And that's one thing I say is that you gotta, this is not something that you need to figure it out yourself. There's a lot of you know, strategies you can see. I would say the most important thing as a young investigator is get on a grant review panel and then see what grants actually do well and figure out what they did well and then take those strategies and use them yourself. And then the other thing I tell people, and this is, I think, is that you need to diversify your funding stream. You know, the federal government is really mercurial and hard to get money from. And there are years where they can be really brutal. There are amazing um, foundations like Leukemia Lymphoma Society, but then a pandemic hits and they can't run events. And then philanthropy is very capricious because a donor has to, to do it and decide. So what you want to do, I always tell people, it's like running a business. You need a diversified funding stream. And so I tell the lab, we're going to get from each of these buckets. And you want to be at an institution that will, will support you and say, oh no, we only care if you get federal money. It just doesn't work. And so I always tell people, you need to build a funding strategy because federal money is definitely the most desirable and it's renewable, but it won't pay for everything. And so I always tell people, you have to think of it, running a lab is like having a kiosk at the mall. At the end of the day, you're paying rent to somebody else and you have your own goods. But in your little thing, if you could pay your rent, you do what you want, but you do have to make sure that you have the revenue to pay your rent. 
And that's the way I've approached grants is that if I can get the grants to fund my people and my space, I then have freedom as do they to do what we want to do. And a lot of grants will give you great latitude to follow the science and not just do. And so I, I view it as sort of an, as, a, as, a, as a means, but not the end. I don't know if that helps, Chad. No, it does help. What, what do you think? What do you think are the um, other? What I would say misconceptions about a lab career. If somebody is listening and just look at this, give us some of the misconception, maybe misconceptions that you probably have seen based on mentoring many folks. Yeah, I would say the biggest one. And there are people that strongly agree and disagree with me, but I, I believe strongly in the following. And this, this is this. I believe fundamentally that being a successful scientist and being a successful clinician or clinical investigator require largely the same logical sort of thought process and skill set. I believe that when we're in the ICU and a patient's kidneys are failing and you think of the 19 different things it could be, you try to methodically work through all 19. You may not change one at a time, but you're looking at all 19 and you're trying to figure out how to triage and think about it. Science is the same way. When an experiment doesn't work, we think about all the different moving parts and approach it. And you have to be able to break it down its part. But you also have to look at the pattern of results in the lab and figure out what it means the same way we look at a patient. And I think that the thing that bothers me is when I hear clinical investigators say, you know, I didn't learn to think like a scientist and I can't do it. Or I see PhDs who say, you know, you're a clinician. You don't know how, like, I really believe a great clinician, the people I admire most approach solving a tough clinical problem with the same thought process and logic and rigor that we do in the lab. And I think most talented clinicians and clinical investigators, if they want to do laboratory science, could actually do it. And I think this idea of getting typecast is a huge slippery slope. I don't know if that if that yeah. helps, I don't know what David would say about that. Yeah, um, David, I'd like you to reflect a little bit on what uh, what obviously Ross said because you you also had kind of similar things of doing a few things. But I also, uh, after doing that, I wanted to comment on the fact that many folks, when I see on social media or other outlets, when they talk about people in industry, they say, "Well, you guys have it easy." In the industry, it's easy. It's less work. It's excellent quality of life. You work much less than us in academic medicine. So tell me about that. Yeah, um, that's a misperception. And I think it's also a misperception that industry is really all about, you know, making money and trying to trick the FDA into approving your product. I mean, you know, there, there are always egregious examples of particularly small biotechnology companies that get backed into a corner. They have one product and you know they they start doing some really kind of kooky things to 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 try to ensure their continued existence but that's rare and you know i think the the people really sincerely the people that i work with want to make a difference and they're in this because you know they want to improve human health and um sure at the end of the day it is a job and it is business but um, you know, the, I, I've been very impressed by the level of discussions that we have, the level of scrutiny that all of our programs go through. Now, one of the things that I think people find a little bit difficult in industry is, is that um, sometimes you may be assigned to a different project um, because of uh, you know, a, a, a shift that's not purely science-based or not purely based on clinical results. It may be based on staffing or maybe based on, 
you know, the, the global competitive market, that sort of thing. So I think that's kind of hard for people. One other thing that I think is hard in industry is you can be let go, even though you're doing a great job. Um, you know, Gary Gilland is a, is a terrific example of that he went from Boston, he went to Merck and you know, was a senior vice president there and uh, by all reports was doing a good job, but developed Emeralism app. Yeah, I mean, you know, a huge, tremendous impact uh, on on the health of cancer patients, right? But then a new CEO came, and the new CEO, you know, wanted to to bring in their own people and and change the leaders, and so then, you know, Gary had to find a, a new position. Uh, you know, Tom Lynch is another example, you know, and and um, his company got acquired after he'd been there a couple of years, kind of unexpected, and so. You know, the things happen even if you are a good doctor, a good scientist doing a good job. So, you know, the one thing that, and this came out of conversations that Gary and I had, I should, something he and I talked about when he was at Merck and after, is that the one thing, though, in academia that's hard in industry, and again, get your reaction to this, Dave, is that in industry, if you're the big boss, like you are or Jay Bradner, if someone is multiple levels below, it is often hard for those people to speak out against and say that an idea that's already top down been bought into yeah. is actually the wrong idea. And the beauty of my job is that whatever titles I have, the grad students at the bench tells me I'm full of crap. They actually one will say it, and two, they get to decide and go do it anyway. Yeah. I, you know what I'm saying? And I think that's the trick of industry is that it, it's a dangerous trap to fall into if you don't figure out a way to ensure that the hierarchy, you want to make sure that that doesn't prevent sort of, you know, people speaking out for what they believe. And I'm not saying that's cut and dry, but it's a bigger risk in industry than academia. I don't know what you think, Dave. I, I agree. Um, I think that, you know, it, it, it partly depends on the culture that you try yep. to cultivate. Um, you know, we, we, for instance, one of our CEO has this uh, mantra he likes to use, which is an unbossed culture. And that's giving people as much autonomy. I mean, everybody, of course, has a manager, but, um, you know, I'm not telling these physicians who are the clinical program leaders what to do. You know, I ask them what they want to do and we, and we discuss it. And then in turn, you know, they're discussing with their teams. And so, you know, if, if problems arise or if somebody has something that they want to bring up, I hope that they feel comfortable bringing it up with me, but you're absolutely right. There is a little bit more of a hierarchy that sometimes is intimidating. One thing that I think has helped in that is um, with virtual meetings, it's less intimidating for people to put a comment in a chat sometimes than it is around a boardroom, around a table to speak up when there's someone who's, you know, very senior to them uh, right there. You know, partly because when you're putting it in the chat, you can be a little careful about the wording and maybe think it through a little bit what you want to say. Uh, but also because I think it does level the playing field uh, just a, a little bit. Uh -huh. I think one thing that also is different about industry is just the speed at which things happen. Um, you know, I, I was reflecting on this uh, because Novartis is going through a reorganization right now. And phase two was announced yesterday. And unfortunately, 8,000 people, give or take a few, are going to lose their jobs, mostly in the, the sort of commercial marketing, you know, uh, strategic roles. Um, you know, the, for that to happen and the type of reorganization that has happened, 
major structural changes at an academic center would have taken many years. I was thinking yep. it could, could never happen at the Farber because there would be there's too many entrenched sort of fiefdoms and deals that have been made in the past. And it's just much more of a, um, a, a, a decentralized uh, organization. Whereas when you have a single company, they can make these decisions where things change very quickly for better, for worse. Yeah. Ross, uh, when we talk about mentorship, what does that mean to you? And, and maybe give me, give me in your own words, what, what makes a successful mentor and a successful mentee? Uh, in the introduction for this episode, I will share a personal story where I believe well, I'll say it here. I think some folks think they are good mentors, but they're probably not. And <laughs> and and I think there are certain characteristics. So, what are, what are your thoughts? What makes a good mentor? It's a great question. I feel like it's something I feel like I'm still learning all the time about how to do it well and better. I think for me, the most important thing is that it's about helping the mentee find their path and not just either one making choices for them or trying to encourage them to follow your path. I think the biggest trap I see is when a mentor thinks that success is when all of their protégés make similar choices and career paths as them. I try to, as best I can, think what are they looking for? What do they want to do? And how do I help them accomplish that? I understand it's not that simple, right? Like sometimes it's I want that experiment to work too. And, and, and so it's not like those things are always at odds, but I do think that, you know, helping people figure out what they want to do and then asking, what are the things that you need to get there that you need me to help? And they may not be exactly the same as what you think they are. And I have to work with you to figure out um, what they are. And it's taken me a long time to sort of figure out how to individualize um, the strategy. And then the other thing I think is that I always feel like, you know, the things that I try to teach people are, you know, to have fearlessness about the things they do, whether it's experimental things, like never talk yourself out of an experiment if it's a great experiment, even if it looks hard. Never talk yourself out of trying something. Encouraging people to like go go for it. And to if, 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 if they have fear or anxiety, helping them, you know, understand why even if it's hard, it's worth trying. And then the other thing is self-awareness. I think people need to have a really good understanding of their interests, their hopes, their capabilities, and the things are good at, things are not. I always say that my most talented trainee to date is this guy, Omar Abdel Wahab, who's a friend of David's too. And he's actually more successful than I am. I think at this stage in his career and is a wonderful human being too. And I'm proud that I have had a, a, a role in helping him navigate that. But I, I will tell you that he and I have talked about this, that although he and I have similar jobs, we both work at Sloan, we both run successful labs. There are parts of what I do uh, that he's better at than me. And there are parts of what of what he does that I'm better at than him. And he and I are able to have a pretty honest conversation that even though we're both pretty damn good at our jobs, that there's a 10% of it where I actually could use some of his help, perspective and vice versa. That takes a lot of like uh, honest and trust and uh, uh, to figure out. I don't know if those, those are, those yeah, are my threads. It, it takes the humbleness as well, the humility. Yep. But I loved what you said in the beginning, Ross, which, which is, because I, I do see it. Um, 
being a good mentor is not about everybody needs to be a lab scientist. If one of your mentees in the lab says, I want to go to industry, you, your role as a mentor is to help him accomplish what will make him successful in industry. And I think that sometimes is missing. I, I maintain interactions with my trainees um, and mentees, whether they were in my lab or not, who've gone to industry. I've written papers with some of them. I often, my strongest collaboration in the industry is because somebody in my lab went to industry and they're like, you know what? We have something now and because I love working with you guys. And I'm like, that's the best. That's the most fun, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't, obviously we want to make an impact and you want to do collaborations that are impactful, but doing with people that you have a shared story with is something special. Absolutely. David, is there a mentorship part in industry? Is there, I mean, in academia, it's kind of pretty straightforward. You mentor postgrads, residents, fellows, students. In industry, is there such a thing as mentorship and mentor-mentee? There is. Um, there's definitely uh, both a career development aspect, which we actually do spend a lot of time thinking about that, how to you know, encourage people to grow and, and uh, giving them opportunities, whether it's, you know, to, to learn communications training or, you know, to, to learn a new uh, skill. Uh, but also there is, there is a lot of um, guidance uh, that, that's given to try to, to, to help people, you know, get to, the, get to wherever they, they ultimately want to, to go. There's also, of course, you know, people have a job to do and, and you know, that's the majority of, of why they're here, but, um, but the career development definitely matters. Also, you know, mentorship doesn't end uh, in when, you, when somebody moves to, to industry. And I still keep in touch with a lot of um, colleagues and, you know, with, with people um, who I, I very much uh, value. Uh, in academia. I also now have a executive coach, which is a new thing for me, um, who's uh, working specifically with me. I meet with her every one to two weeks. This was something- I, wa that I was want that job. I want to be the executive coach. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's different from like a, it, it, like a therapist or something, although it is very highly personal, but it's really about you know, helping you get from where you are to where you want to go and uh, developing whatever skill set that you that you want to develop. They begin with a, a 360 review of people that report to you, people you report to, and colleagues that are at a similar level to you. And, uh, you know, a good 360 review, it draws a little blood. It doesn't require transfusion, but it's helpful to see yourself how others see you. Um, and, and so, you know, that process is going on right now. You know, the episode I aired of the podcast this week was with a life coach, was a GI pathologist. Her name is Christina Arnold. Arnold right? yeah. Yeah. She left GI pathology and she's a life coach. Uh, take a listen to it. I was fascinated. I, I learned so much about this. I started Googling life coaching schools. I'm like, I want to be a life coach too. I can do it. This is the, you know, this is an executive coach is, is like a life coach, but specifically for, you know, okay. people who are in leadership positions in the corporate yeah. world, because yeah. uh, there's certain skill sets. Yeah. Uh, Ross, do you believe in peer mentorship? And what I mean by that is, is there a point in your career where you don't need to have a mentor? I mean, when you're a professor and you're running this, or do you always feel 
mentorship is a continuum that it doesn't mean you, you're never above being mentored by your colleagues. Maybe it's not mentorship, maybe it is advice, whatever it is. Uh, what are your thoughts about peer mentorship? I call it peer mentorship. Yeah, I mean, I think you're never above it. I, you know, when I have to navigate things, like when I have had a few opportunities in academia to think either about new roles at Sloan or opportunities elsewhere or choices I want to make about my science, um, I've sort of fashioned a sort of peer group of folks that I think we're all helpful to each other as we navigate these things, one of whom is David's boss, Jay Bradner, who's my college classmate, and a number of others. And I think we all go to each other. When I was making recent important career decisions, I even ran the choices and job descriptions by folks and, and talked through it and, 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 and went and got some advice. And it's funny, I was talking to one of my bosses at Sloan who said to me, you need to go and get some outside advice about what you're going to do and whether you're going to be here or not. And I went and talked to some folks outside who um, I viewed as um, having um, experience I didn't have on things. And I just needed to talk through things. And it was immensely helpful for me. The other thing for me, I think, is that and I grew up, you know, at Dana Far MGH and then Dana-Farber. And I was very lucky, and many of us are, but my peer group that I did my medical residency and then fellowship with and started in the lab includes some pretty extraordinary people. It includes people like Ben Ebert, who David mentioned before. It includes Jay Bradner. It includes Levi Garraway, who's the chief medical officer at Genentech, Jeff Engelman, many others. And we kind of grew up together. And whether we're at academia, industry, I think we all sort of got a lot of back and forth with each other. And I felt you know, and again, it's like everything else in medicine, like these are the people I took call with when I was an intern in the unit, right? And then they're going through the same career, like journey as you 20 years later, you know, it's like you went to war with someone and, and those people are immensely valuable to me. And I'm very fortunate because some of them are extraordinarily thoughtful. Obviously they're very productive and they, 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 they're, they're always just a text or a email or a phone call away. And, you know, we can maybe get, uh, to meetings, uh, you know, for me at my stage, the primary thing I get out of meetings is, you know, one of the two things I think that are important for me that I get out of meetings is catching up with those groups if they're not local. Like when I go to ACR, seeing my posse is really important to me, much more important than going to a large event. The other thing for me is meeting young people that I might not otherwise meet. Um, the rest of meetings, so maybe we get that, I could do without. That is literally perfect segue. It was not rehearsed about the meetings. I mean, uh, so uh, maybe David, do we have a lot of medical meetings? It seems to me that every weekend you could literally be in a meeting somewhere. Yeah, we, we have too many meetings, certainly. Why? I think uh, it's economics. They want to make money. Well, it's a little like... Um... It's a little like why we now have too many classifications for hematologic diseases. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's a certain there's a certain ego that goes into setting up meetings, but there's also you know people want to discuss specific topics, and there are different groups. You know, the the folks who go to ASCO, who go to ASH, who go to AACR, who go to EHA, overlap a little, but not a lot. Um, and so that that's part of it. And then you, you get to all the smaller disease specific meetings and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very different. David, you've got ASCO GI, ASCO GU, yeah. 
SGO, Society of Ghana Oncology, AACR, ASCO, EHA, World GI, World Lung, ESMO GI, ESMO Lung, ESMO Asia, ESMO Latin America, best of ASCO across the year. Then you've got ESMO, ASH, SITSI, Society of Neuro-Oncology. I can probably literally recite about 25 meetings without even looking at them. Uh, yeah, well, like, uh, what do you think? I mean, like, oh, wait, journals, wait, right? wait, uh, wait, 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 too many. Um, way, way too many, maybe logarithmically so. Um, I think that um, they've been good for academics who want to get their name out. And it's easy to get on the meeting um, trail and view, view it as an end and not just a means to an end. And that's a dangerous slippery slope that I know at points in my career, it was great to be on the circuit. And um, it becomes its own thing versus really asking yourself, well, why am I going to present our science? Is it because I want to share something or have I given that talk eight times before? <laughs> and I think that it's easy to, to give that talk again. And it's, it's silly um, to do that. That's one aspect. I think the other aspect is that I think, you know, many of us in academic medicine, whether lab or clinical, we spent the first 35 years of our lives like sweating in hospitals, never traveling. And there is a part of it where people want to do things. And I respect that. I don't mean that in any pejorative way. I, I, I will say I have had the blessing of having the chance to see a lot of the world um, with dear friends in wonderful places that I enjoyed it. Um, at times, but obviously I have different perspectives on it now. The thing that, that I feel strongly about is that, you know, some of this you can control and some of it you can't. And the way I view it is the following, is that if you, I, I, as a, I, can, I can give the same talk on leukemia genetics and epigenetics, you know, 15 times a year if I want at meetings. I, I, and I did it, I'm not, not doing it anymore. And I realize I'm in a privileged space that I have stature but I'll pick the two or three that I'm excited about and where I think I've got something new to share. And then I'm gonna suggest other people for the other ones as best I can, because I think there those opportunities are people that really deserve and maybe don't get those opportunities. Do you think the first five years of your career as a clinician, scientist, or researcher, you kind of have to say yes to everything so people get- I think it is, I think you do, there's a, I, I hate to use the word you're building your brand, but you do want to have the chance to present your science in the rooms where the people that review your grants and papers are. You want to visit institutions where those same people are. You want to build your collaborations. And I definitely encourage the people from my group that starts their lab for the first five years. But I do think as a lab investigator, for example, I tell my people, don't go to ASCO. Don't go to, the, I, I get that they may want you to give that heme talk but that's actually not gonna solve what I just described. What you wanna do if you're a lab person is give a talk at a scientific meeting where the people review your grants and papers are. You know, every three years you wanna to go to ASCO, so be it, fine. But don't, but don't do it. Like I, I don't go to ASCO. Like so what, what, meetings do you, what meetings do you go to? So the only, I go to ASH every year, although I have this dream in the next few years of doing an ASH hiatus when I'm at some point where I stay home, uh, maybe in, when I'm done with my institution, my ASH responsibilities, uh -huh. I may get in trouble for saying that. But I have a dream that one year I'm going to send photos of all the great places I am with my family. Everyone's at ASCO. I did that for, 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 for ASH. I mean, I did that for ASCO this year. But, um, you know, I go to ASH every year. I have probably three or four core meetings in my um, 
in my field, there's a FASEB hemolytic meeting, there's a keystone hematopoiesis and that I do. And those are important to me because those are like a recurring meeting where my people, like my field go. And it's important for me to be there to hear their science and to show our science and to network. And then I run the AACR course for fellows who are going into the lab. That's in a couple of weeks in Aspen. It's the lab version of Vail. And it's a, that's very important to me to run a course to help people get started. And, and I do that. The, and the rest I do is by choice. And I will tell you, and David and I have spent a lot of time talking about this on and offline. I'm mostly choosing uh, to not um, to not do it. Um, I've got a travel stretch from late July to mid-August of a few meetings. And then, you know, I think I'm giving... Um, I've got one meeting at Ash headquarters in September, which, and then I've got one lecture in October, and that's it. And, and again, I, I, I live in a privileged world. I also live in a world where people ask me to give Zoom talks, where I can do it from my room. I also live in a world where there's a hot story in science that maybe people don't hear about. I'm often guessing getting to review it as a grant or a paper. So I've got and I use Twitter and all these things, which I think are useful. So I realize that. So I do encourage people early in their career, or if you're not at a big institution, you gotta get out there. Um, but then if you actually start to feel like you're achieving and people know who you are, you should use that stature as a way not to keep going to meeting and meeting and to be more selective and to use that privilege as, as a way to pick your spots and to advocate for others to get the opportunities that maybe you don't think you need anymore. You need both those things. David, uh, tell us about some uh, hiatus story uh, pertaining, I mean, because, because listening to you, you've been on the uh, travel circuit. So two questions for you. Number one, travel in industry is a little bit different than travel in academia, because you probably have responsibilities travel for business and other things. So how is that shaping up? And, and do you have much, do you have the leisure to do what Ross is doing, which is he can say no? Yeah, so... I've been thinking about a lot about this lately, actually, uh, Chadi, you know, partly um, because next week, my daughter, who's a PhD student in molecular plant sciences, working on uh, single cell algae um, extremophiles, is going to her first meeting at which she'll present. She's going to this international symposium on carbon utilization by photosynthetic organisms at Princeton and giving a talk and and uh, so now it's it's the baton is being passed to the next generation. <laughs> um, Tatiana Prowl, who was who was going to join us on this podcast, but FDA wouldn't let her. Uh, she and I have have become friends over the years and have had a number of good talks about uh, meetings and COVID. she's very concerned about COVID safety, understandably. Uh, with meetings and about uh, carbon footprint, you know, three to four percent of um, the current global CO two output is is air travel, and that's the predominant way of 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 getting to meetings. It's great to be talking about this with Ross too, because we have talked about this several times over the years. One of the most fun trip memories I have is of a small <laughs> meeting in Dubrovnik, Croatia, organized by Serge Verstovsek from MD Anderson and some of his Croatian colleagues. 
And uh, Dubrovnik has this fantastic medieval wall that you can walk around in. King's Landing from Game of Thrones. It is. Well, this was pre-Game of Thrones, but now everybody would recognize it who's seen Game of Thrones. And, and, uh, and we went and walked around together and just had a great conversation. It was a, a wonderful day. I got to know Ross a little bit better. And those are the kind of things with an in-person meeting that happen and you make, you, you know, you make a a friendship or strengthen a friendship yep. um, that, that, you know, can last for the rest of your life. That said in 2019, I think Ross and I were probably both just getting a little burned out and travel and challenged each other to take a six month hiatus from <laughs> travel starting in 2020. And, and the dates we picked were sort of late spring to, 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 to fall when things got busy again. Well, and then COVID happened, and and it, that travel hiatus became mandatory. So, so you're behind COVID. You're well. You're... It was it was uh, it was unexpected, but it was. I mean, it was wonderful in some ways. I, I took up woodworking. It was great to be at home, just a, a much more relaxed uh, pace and quality of life. On the other hand, I miss people. And when I went to the Ash Annual Meeting in December, which was the first meeting since March 2020. You know, everybody I talked to just about one or two sentences in and people would tear up or they'd give you a second hug. They were just so happy to see each other again and, and to be able to relate what was really going on in their lives. Because it was also, you know, in addition to not being able to travel, of course, we've all been through tremendous trauma in different ways, some more uh, than others in the, in the last two, few years. Two um, things I'll yeah. I, I just want to add, Dave, two things. One is that... um. One of the things I'm proudest of for 2022 so far, and I think scheduled, is that I'm going to travel as much for my daughter's ice hockey as I will for <laughs> work, um, uh, relatively similarly. And that's a goal I have to to travel as much with my family as I do for work. It may not get there, but certainly that's something I've thought a lot about is that um, I definitely want to make sure that I'm more balanced and when I do travel and that you know, I do that. And the other, I will tell you, it's funny. David gives one version. I actually had a very different experience. I was at Ash this past year, like him, was my first away meeting. I'd only been in a hotel when I was with my family, either on a drive vacation or hockey tournament. I had not done work travel overnight. I'd done a day trip to Boston in November of 20 as a dry run. I actually was miserable um, there to the point that I went home early. And well, I well, will, I will tell you that, and I'm a, extrovert at heart, I found that during the pandemic, I developed a real like aversion to large, like the large parts of meetings, like the big room, the yeah. big reception. And I'm sure some of it was the sense that Omicron was coming and the sense that even with masks, it just felt like you could never get rid of the risk. But it's funny, I still I'm struggling with that and I'm being really honest about it. But is it for is me, it, Russ, is it is it safety or is it just no. you feel no value? I think that it's that I developed, um, I got out of that getting used to being in war and I found that I don't enjoy it the same way I used to being in the big room. And I'm always like, why am I here? And so what I learned at, and I've done a few meetings a day, CR was that I go to the big rooms when I need to give my talk, whatever. But in general, when I go to big meetings now, I schedule mostly smaller events with small groups. I'm much happier at Ash or ACR at a dinner with three or four friends and that I am, and I, 
avoid the large receptions. And that's very different than I used to. I used to love going and shaking and maybe it'll change, but I have to say, I think for me, at least I'm, it'll be interesting. I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, let's, let's see where we are in December in New Orleans. I think whether I go to the big events or not. Do you have that luxury, David? I mean, I think I, I, I'm going to assume that you probably don't have as much freedom in making these decisions like Ross. Yeah. I do have some control, but one of the things that we're doing at meetings is meeting with investigators and meeting with other companies, particularly companies where we may partner with them or where we're considering buying them. Um, and so that aspect of it is... Uh, is I think you know going to be with me to to stay as long as I'm in this role. I had a very similar reaction to how Ross described Ash at ASCO. I went the first day; it was overwhelming. It was so much fuller than ASCO, it or than Ash had been. There were over thirty thousand people compared to I don't remember what Ash. There were about ten at Ash this year. Yeah, it was a third of that, right? So, um, and. And I went into a, a lymphoid malignancy session. Every chair was full. Almost no one had masks on. Um, like every single chair, like all the, the, and I just got this like weird claustrophobia sense. And I tried to stand in the back. And of course the guy from the, the Cormac Center came over and said, you can't stand here, fire marshal rules. So I said, okay, maybe it was just this session was packed. There was some good new data being presented. So I went to another session couple hours later, same thing. I mean, even though I was there a few minutes early, there was no chairs. It was, it was totally packed. And I was just, I said, <laughs> enough of this. So I watched the rest of the meeting, the scientific part of the meeting in my hotel in your room. room. Yeah. I had a nice view of the Chicago river. It was lovely. And I went to all the individual, you know, I met with Guillermo Garcia Monero from MD Anderson and his colleagues. And I, you know, I, I had a meal with Ruben. But again, Nessa, but David, the same question know. to you, the same question to you, take COVID out of the equation completely. Yeah. Is that, I guess I'm trying to separate the, the, the feeling about the meetings, how much of this you're afraid of catching something right. versus you has nothing to do with COVID. You just feel, ah, you know, I've, I've grown out of this. Yeah. I, I think it's a little bit hard to disentangle them right now given that we're just re-emerging from COVID. That said, I love being able to be in the room and watch a talk that was just given at one and a half speed and not have to, you know, fight the crowds. And if something isn't what I expected, you know, and you're the fourth speed in to have to disturb everybody to come out of the aisle and go somewhere else. And, you know, and, and to be able, you know, Ash always had simultaneous sessions where there were multiple things you wanted to go to at the same time. Now that's not an issue because you can watch the things you, you, you want. You know, I'll go if at Ash, it was always really important to me if I had like a trainee that I'd worked with to, you know, be there in the front row to make the presence, your presence known and support them. But it's it's different now. I mean, you know, we have presentations that are trials or studies that we sponsor, but it's, you know, it's it's not the same as it was when I was at the fire. I, I went I went from going to meetings and then watching my daughter's hockey games on simulcasts from wherever I was to being at my daughter's hockey games, watching <laughs> the meetings and simulcasts. And I will take the latter over the former. It's, and that's a very personal choice. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been amazing. I mean, time just flew by. I, I love this. I think we've covered mentorship, mentees. We've talked about the career path. We've talked about meetings. 
Before I let you go and uh, any um, parting thoughts, so David, we'll start with you. Any last comments, anything we probably should have talked about that I did not uh, capture? Well, it's always fun to talk to you, Chadi. We, we covered a wide range of topics. And I always feel like when I talk to Ross and hang up the phone or, you know, dinner ends that, that I, I could talk to the guy for another six hours because he just has so much energy and insight. And, and uh, so I'm particularly honored to be on here with, with Ross. Um, I, I've really enjoyed our friendship and uh, hope I see you, if not at a meeting, you know, some other fun place. Let's, let's yeah, have, I'll be at a hockey it. tournament mid, mid-August in, in the Boston area. I'll there ping we you. Go. I will let's, see you in Boston. Let's, let's hope New Orleans. Let's hope New Orleans. Yeah. Ross, any parting thoughts? Anything maybe we should have covered that I didn't, uh, didn't catch? No, I, this was great. I hope, I know there's many more to cover and I hope it's not my last time here. I promise oh, to no, come back if you'll have me. And, uh, you know, David, it's uh, been always great to see you my friend and chatty i will say it's been just a pleasure to get to uh meet you virtually and i can't wait to meet you in person and to have some scarbnik barbecue together i am looking forward to it david one last thing you know this is um you say new orleans uh this happened last year with the georgia voting law there was a call to move ash uh i was kind of against it because you know it's always the service workers who get screw the most and you know they depend on meetings and such this year the louisiana issue is a little bit more complicated because it's a safety issue with the the road yeah, trigger ban down and so this is this may be more than just politics it may be safety of attendees and that to me is in a different category it's also a little hypocritical i guess because we have in the past gone to meetings in countries where you know the the, the safety is not guaranteed that said this is a really, you know, something that I'm really wrestling with. And I know Ashes and other medical societies. As I, well. I'm not going to say more because I have a role with Ash. So um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to defer to the societies. We try to navigate yeah. the issues David just brought up. Yeah. I wasn't aware that uh, Ash was looking into this. I serve on the Ash uh, sub uh, quality subcommittee and, uh, but I didn't know that, um, uh, this is being discussed, maybe, but uh, I'm sure they will. Uh, they will let us know at some point. We'll, we'll hear. Yeah, we'll hear at some point. Guys, thank you so much for coming to my Thanks. modest podcast. If Tatiana is listening, she missed out on a fun podcast. Yeah, uh, she totally yeah, did. Totally, totally. I'm gonna make totally, her feel bad. Her. Totally did. You have to make her feel bad. All right, guys. I will. Thank you so That's much. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed taping it tremendously. We are taping this episode uh, on the July 4th weekend. It's been really such a pleasure to have my guests on the show. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and let me know how I'm doing. You can follow me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, and you can send me your opinions, your ideas on Twitter, or by sending me a direct email, or by sending me also uh, a message through my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Winston Churchill. No one can guarantee success in war, but only deserve it. Until next time, take care.